Good morning. It's good to see you today. Even though you don't see me in person, it's good to be with you in uh, spirit anyway, and to be able to teach you God's word. Let me explain to you why you're watching this on the uh, on the big screens uh, here this morning. Uh, just this is Saturday mid-afternoon, three o'clock, and I started running a little bit of a low-grade fever and feeling a little bit of sniffles in my nose and not feeling bad at all, but really torn as to what to do. Don't want to be telling you if you have a fever to stay home and then me tomorrow morning have a fever and come. So I guess I decided it was better to err on the side of safety and to preach this message via the computer. The other reason I wanted to do it by computer is that, of course, Pastor Matt was gone all this week. He's with you this morning, but I knew he'd be getting back, and I didn't want to throw this on him uh, to be ready to preach Sunday morning when he just pulled in and, and getting back to life here. So with those considerations, decided it was best for us just to opt for something that is not the ideal alternative, but nevertheless will work for you as we teach and study God's word this morning. So my goal today is to finish us through Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Now, finishing that today, we're going to take a break from the book of Romans for the month of December. Uh, I'm going to be bringing a short series the first two Sundays um, out of the book of Revelation on the return of the king. And so we'll be looking at that for two Sundays. And then on the last Sunday before Christmas, we're going to do, uh, we'll have the ensemble playing music for us that morning, as well as I intend to have obviously some things with the kids. We'll be doing some singing and some reciting and then a very short message for you that day. And um, just look forward to celebrating the advent of our Savior as we remember his birth and his nativity. Uh, coming up to uh, this Christmas season. And so, uh, like I said, you have to bear with me this morning and watch this on the computer, even though it is less than ideal. I definitely didn't want to be like the mayor of Denver, who's telling everybody, stay home, stay home, stay home. Don't go and be with family and friends and tweets that out. And then 30 minutes later, he gets on an airline and goes to Houston uh, to be with his daughter and his wife. And um, kind of that whole thing, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And so I didn't want to be guilty of that. So forgive me. And um, this is just less than the ideal as we go forward today. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving as you celebrated together with your family and your friends. And yeah, we live in a time of COVID, but um, we don't want to give place to fear and to, you know, we don't want to be misguided in uh, being insensitive, by no means do we want to do that. We want to take every precaution. We want to take this illness very seriously. But nevertheless, we still got to function in life. And I hope that you had a wonderful time with those that you were able to gather with. I'm sure there was some creative ways of doing it again this year as well, virtually. And uh, that's just the nature of the beast. Anyway, take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We're going to read through verses 1 through 6. And we're going to work through those verses this morning, and like I said, we're going to end our study in the book of Romans then for a couple of weeks as we go into December. Let's look in the text together. I'm going to read these verses, and then we're going to look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Romans 7 verse 1 says, Do you not know, brothers, 
For I am speaking to those who know the law. But the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Then he uses this illustration that we looked at last week. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law of marriage accordingly. She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, very important verse here. This verse is going to serve as a hinge into where we go as we go further in chapter 7, chapter 8. So we're going to look back at it later when we come back to the book of Romans and we start in the beginning of January. He says, but now, and I want you to notice the word now. He doesn't say sometime in the future, when you get to heaven, when you become a mature saint, when whatever. He says, now, present possession of the believer. But now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we no longer serve, or excuse me, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written with a letter, that's really the Greek word there, the letter, the written code. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to see it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God that powerfully works in us who believe. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would powerfully work in us today to understand our present possession in Christ, our position in Christ, that as we go forward in our study, these things may become more and more ours in the way we live every day. And so I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's look at the text. As we begin, let's go back for just a minute. We're talking about the believer and his relationship to law, specifically the law of Moses. We talked about the three uses of the law, that the reformers, the Protestant reformers, and many before them and many since them, many outside of the Reformation stream of Christianity, nevertheless, look at the law of, Mo of Moses. And they, we look at the Old Testament and say, why did God give it? What was the purpose? What was he doing? How is it applicable to me today? And so we wrestled with these things. And we came to terms with the fact that, first of all, it acts as a curb. It restrains us. And we're going to tie that specifically with what we see in verse 5 today. Number two, it acts as a mirror. It reflects to me my actual condition. And then three, it is a lamp. It guides me. 
Um, David said in the Old Testament, speaking of the law, the word of God is a lamp to my feet. It is a light to my path. And so it guides us, it directs us, it helps us to discern God's will in daily life. Now, there are six characteristics of law that we see in these first seven verses. We didn't read verse seven today, but we have read it before. When he says, I would not have known sin unless the law had said. Okay, so it reveals. So first of all, the law is known. He says that in verse one. Secondly, and this is what we looked at last week with the illustration of marriage, the law binds, constrains. And so it is a binding relationship. Marriage is a contractual relationship. It is a love relationship, but it is also a binding legal tie. And so it binds. And then conversely, it condemns. When I break the law, it condemns me. And so we see that. So if a woman is living with a man or a man is living with a woman who is not his spouse or her spouse, then they are regarded legally as an adulterer before God and before men. Okay, so it binds and it condemns. It also arouses. That's what we're going to look at here in just a minute. Um, when he says in verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work. Okay? And so it arouses my sinful passions. I won't say any more about that now because I want to save that for a little bit later in the message. It is written. That's number 5. It is written. It's not arbitrary. It's not, it, like we said at the beginning, this ties with knowable. The law is knowable. It's not just some ethereal thing that's out there. It's not just common law. It's written law. God gave us a written legal code in the Old Testament. He wrote it down. He wrote it in stone. And God doesn't do anything haphazardly. Why did God write it in stone? He's showing these things are immutable. These things are unchangeable. The law of Moses, those Ten Commandments that we've looked at briefly, they don't change. They don't change with time. They are the standard. They reflect to us aspects of God's moral nature and his character. And so it is written. And then the last one is in verse 7. And this is where we'll really jump into, as we move into the last of the chapter, when we get to January, that the law reveals. How would I have known sin unless the law had said to me, thou shalt not covet? And so in the very nature of the law, in that it is written, it is known, it binds, it constrains, it condemns, it then reveals to me who I am and my true state. And so it acts as a curb, it restrains, it acts as a mirror to reflect, and then it acts as a lamp to guide. And this leads us into where we are going as we look further into the text this morning. And I want you to look at the next portion of the paragraph, picking up from where we left off last week. After looking at the illustration, the illustration was marriage. It's a beautiful illustration because it ties us into this concept that you see all through the New Testament, that the church is the bride of Christ. And it is bearing testimony to that and bringing out aspects of that as we think about our relationship to Christ, as well as our relationship to that which has gone before in the Mosaic Law. So he takes the illustration and he now applies it. And that's why he says in verse 4, likewise. Notice that word likewise. In using the word likewise, he is literally tying us 
to what he's just said. He's taking what he just said, now he's applying it. And you'll notice there are continuities with what he said, but there's also some contrasts. So look at this uh, application. What does he say? Likewise, my brothers, you also, just like this woman, or, or woman's husband has died, you also have died to the law. So in the application, the law lives on, but you died to it. You are the one who died. In what way? How did we die? Through the body of Christ. In other words, Christ died. Having fulfilled the law, having kept the law, having perfectly fulfilled the righteous standard of the law, Christ died. And he dies, and like it says in Galatians, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, quoting from the Mosaic law. He dies as a curse for us, for our sin. Nevertheless, he is guiltless. We are the guilty party. And so what we see here is Christ died, and in him we too have died, in our union with Christ. Now, this obviously ties us back to chapter 6. And I want to go back there for just a minute, take your Bible and flip back to chapter 6, previous page, and remember what he said in chapter 6. He asked that question, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were also baptized into his death, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Notice that phrase, newness of life, because that ties into the end of this section, when in verse 6, verse six he says, we live and we serve in the newness of the Spirit. So we walk in newness of life and we serve in a newness of Spirit. And so, in chapter 6, in Christ's death, Remember what Paul said in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, Christ now lives in me. In our union with Christ, Christ died, we are united with him, and so too we have died to sin and the law. And when he gets to chapter 8, Paul's going to develop this further because he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, chapter 8, verse 1. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done for us what the law could never do, because it was weak through the flesh. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. And that's where we'll get to go later. But you see that tie-in. You see this tie. So he takes us back. So in this illustration, it's a perfect, beautiful illustration for us that we have died to sin. We have died to the law in our resurrection in Christ. In this present state, we now walk in newness of life. And in the power of the Spirit, we are not just governed by the legal requirement of the law, I ended my message last week and I said, if, if it's the law that keeps you faithful to your spouse, you're in a bad place. 
What keeps you faithful to your spouse? Love. And love is the fulfillment of the law. We'll see that later in the book of Romans in chapter 13. But also remember that love is above the law. In other words, you can keep the law and not love. Now, you cannot love and not keep the law. That's what he's going to say. But the love, this love is above the law. It is over the law and it fills the law. It permeates it. And so we are governed by what James calls the law of liberty. A law of love. And that is the governing standard of our life. Is love. And that's very important when we get into this next point. When we talk about the newness of the spirit. So there are continuities and contrasts. The, 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 the continuity is the picture of marriage and that death and those aspects of it. But the contrast is we died with Christ. The law is the living partner. We're no longer married to the law. We are now married to Christ who has died and gone before and we belong to him. Now, I want you to notice that. I want you to notice that, what he says, in order that. There are two in order that in these verses. So, likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. In order that, you belong to another. That's a beautiful word. Speaks of ownership. But it speaks of more than that, to belong, to belong to someone else. Think of how beautiful a word that is. You know, in the world, they don't want to belong. They don't want a binding relationship. They want what pleases me, what's good for me now, and when I don't want it anymore, I'm out of here. In that word belong, there is a connotation of the binding nature of our relationship to Christ. But there's also that word, think of that, belonging. In one sense, the world does long to belong to someone. To have relationship. And he's saying to us, this all happened in order that you, my friend, you, my friend, might belong to God. That's a beautiful thought. To belong. To belong to another. To the one who's been raised from the dead. We belong to Christ. Since we belong to him, there are responsibilities. But my friend, there is high privilege here. We belong to God. Think of that in 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what kind of love is this? What kind of love has God bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God? And such we are. And such we are. Think of the beauty of that. We are in the family of God. We belong to God. We belong to Christ. We are his bride. And so the first in order that, so he did this in order that we would belong. It's a permanent relationship, my friend. I don't want you to have a false assurance of your salvation, but I want you to have a true assurance. 
I do want you to have a true assurance. I don't want you to be walking around in an unsettled condition, wondering if God's going to unbelong you. If God's going to write you out of his will. No, that is the binding nature of the covenantal relationship we have with God. That is why God always stresses that, my friend. He wants us to have an assurance. He does not want us living our life wondering if God's going to kick us out the door. In order that we may know we belong to another. Why? Now take the next word. In order that we may bear fruit for God. We may bear fruit for God. Here he's talking literally about reproduction. He's talking about reproduction. The result of our union with sin is death. That's what it says in James chapter 1. You know, when sin conceives, temptation conceives in our heart, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is full grown, brings death. The fruit of temptation, my heart, my passions, my desires, yielding and uniting with sin is death. That's the byproduct. That's the fruit. We saw that in chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. For time, we won't go back there, but remind yourself of that, where it talks about things that bear fruit unto death and things that bear fruit unto God. And he ends that chapter, the wages of sin, the fruit of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's talking about is, is the resultant uh, state and the resultant thing of our union with Christ. The resultant thing is Christ is reproduced through us. New life. We bear fruit unto God. That's why you look at new Christians all through time. You look at it in your life. You get saved. You come to know Christ. Think of Andrew. He meets Jesus. First, he goes and finds his brother Peter. He says, we have found the Messiah. Why? Because the immediate byproduct of our union with Christ is that we want to bear fruit for Christ. Now this leads us on, and this gets important. In verse 5 and 6, we then see this huge contrast. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work. They were at work in the members, remember that word members, the individual parts of our body, to bear fruit for death. Exactly what we just talked about. But now, we are released from the law, having to that died to that which held us captive, so that we no longer so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is important. The first one is four, right? He says in verse five, for while we were living in the flesh, and that is talking about our previous state. When he gets to verse six, he's talking about our present reality. Verse 5 is our previous state. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions. But now, that is our present reality in verse 6. 
And so in verse 5, he's talking about the time of our captivity to sin. In verse 6, he's talking about this new possibility that is opened up to us in belonging to Christ and bearing fruit unto God. Let's look at verse 5 for a minute. This goes back to this idea of how the law arouses our sinful passions. He uses the word flesh here. This speaks of my sinful nature. This word is going to be coming very important in the next section of the book. From now until the middle of chapter 8, he's going to use the word, which he really has used relatively little in the previous portion of this book. He's going to use in these next few verses this word, flesh, 13 times. As he talks about the conflict that goes on between the flesh, my sinful nature, and the spirit. It's important to note something here. And I maybe muddied the water in some things I said before, because I, I want to be very clear here. The flesh lingers in me until my glorification, until I get to heaven. It does not govern me, though. It should not govern you. should not rule in your life. Christ does. Because the flesh lingers in us, though, until our glorification, we'll always have this tendency for our sinful passions to be aroused by the law. Somebody tells you no, what do you want to do? The very thing they told you not to do. But this is very important. The Christian, the believer, is not aroused by sinful passions the same way the non-believer is. The non-believer, this is what I'm talking about, is the previous condition. Before you knew Christ, when you were still walking and living in the flesh, when you were unregenerate, you were rebellious. And whenever the law standard came, it even prompted more rebellion. But now that's not true. That's the point he's making here. Now that is not true. Now you died to that. Very important we understand that. If all the law does to you is arouse your rebellion, you better examine. You better examine. You better examine the condition of your heart. Because for the believer, that is not the governing principle of the law that it arouses us according to our sinful passion. Very clear. In what he's saying here. For a while. We were living in the flesh. Our sinful passions. Aroused by the law. Were at work. But now. Notice that. It is not the law itself that arouses our sinful desires. No our sinful desires are rather amplified. When the standard is set. And the line is drawn. In this way, it shows me the depravity of my heart. Now, why is this so important? The desire or the inclination to disobey and to rebel is revealed by the law, but the law does not create it. It simply reveals it. It amplifies my guilt, and it reflects to me my depravity. Now, why is this so important? Here's why. The law did not make Jesus want to disobey it. Why? There was no sinful passion within him. 
He had no flesh, not flesh and blood, physical body, but he had no sinful nature. Since he had no sinful nature, when the law was set, there was no rebellion. He didn't rebel against God. He did not reveal against God's revelation in the law. Now, there are times, obviously, you read the Gospels, where he takes on the Pharisees for their misinterpretation of the law, and he very strenuously defends God's true law. But the law does not bring out latent rebellion in the heart of Jesus. That is why, my friend, if we are united with him, I want us to think about this. If we are united with him, this dies. This dies. The Christian, the true Christian, is not a rebellious person. So he says, but now, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. In order that, why here, notice this other, in order that, in order that we may serve God. And he wants us to serve, and I want us to notice this, not in the way of the written code, but in the spirit, the newness of the spirit. Paul introduces this thought of the spirit. There again, just like the word flesh, he has not mentioned the spirit much in the first seven chapters of this book. I'm not saying exclusively, never has. Hasn't been central. But as we go into the next section, we are time and time and time again going to be studying the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the question is, what does he mean here? When he says we serve in the new way of the Spirit, in my ESV, it puts a capital letter there, interpreting it to be the Holy Spirit. Some would rather say, no, this is the spirit of the law. Now, he is saying we don't serve and follow God in just according to the letter of the law. We do according to the spirit of the law. Now, of course, that is true. But I think it is clear as we go forward and we look at context, he's not just talking about the spirit of the law. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who is over and above and in the law. And so he is paving the way for chapter 8, which really, in many ways, is the Holy Spirit chapter of the Bible. And I want us to think about this, that it is both, when we're talking about the newness of the Spirit, he is talking about an empowerment and an enablement. And he's also talking about a voice speaking in and through the law, but also a voice that is above the law, that is above the law. Now, does not contradict the law, never would say that, but is above it. We're going to see this when we get to chapter 8. We're going to see all the beautiful things that the Spirit does for us and in us. One of the things is he teaches us how to pray. We don't know how to pray, right? He says, likewise, the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words. And so we don't just pray according to the law. no. We pray now as a Christian in the newness of the spirit. All aspects of our life being governed by him. 
Jesus alluded to this. I got to do this real quick for time, but I want you to take your Bibles and go there later and read Luke chapter five. It's in every synoptic gospel where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and they say, why aren't your disciples fasting like we do in the disciples of John the Baptist? And he tells them a story and he says, when the bridegroom's there, you don't fast, you feast. But there's coming a time when I'm taken away that they will fast. But these people are basically saying in that context that the disciples, because of their association with sinful men, have been shirking the forms prescribed by the law. And so Jesus then tells them the story of the bridegroom, and then he uses two illustrations. He talks about unshrunk cloth being used to patch a garment that has a hole in it. And then he talks about uh, new wine and old wineskins. And that concept of old and new there is very important in what we see Paul doing here. Unshrunk cloth being used to patch an old garment. You wouldn't do that because it would rend the garment. And he's really saying, you know, if you seek to preserve the old by just patching it up, it makes the new useless. And he's telling us here that Judaism could not contain the new covenant bigger than that. It's covenant of the spirit. It's new versus old. And just for time, I'm not going to go any deeper into that, but it's a beautiful illustration that Jesus uses there with new wine and old wineskins. But I want to close, I want to bring this to a close by just thinking through uh, something that I was reading actually several weeks ago and then put it away and knew I'd bring it out again when I got to this section. But I was, I have a book by a guy named William Barclay. He's a commentator. You've probably seen his commentaries maybe on someone's shelf. Maybe you own some of Barclay's commentaries. He did a book on word studies in the Greek New Testament. And they're just, <clears throat> just rich truths on different words in the New Testament. Sometimes I'll pick it up and I'll kind of read it in a devotional way. And it really is a blessing to me. And probably... A month or so ago, I was reading through one and I came to this word and I'm not going to bore you with the actual Greek word this morning, but he was using, he was, he was doing a word study on an actual Greek word. And I'll give you the translation of it here in a minute. And it became very rich in my study because it ties to this. And I knew I was going to come back and bring it up when we got here. And so I just kind of shelved it away in my mind and now I'm bringing it up. This word, this Greek word is used eight times in the New Testament, five times it's used as a noun, three times as an adjective. It's variously translated. Probably most often translated, especially in the older translations with this word, to be forbearing, forbearance. Sometimes it's translated to be lenient, to be conciliatory, to be reasonable, to be courteous, to be considerate. In a lot of the new translations, it's translated with a word, gentle. All of them hit around the word, but all of them miss some essential elements of the word. And I'm not saying there's one word that can convey the central element of the word. That's why nobody hits it. It's a very hard word to get in one word. In James 3, it's used as a quality of wisdom versus a quality of foolishness, that the wise are gentle. 
we're told that all believers should be governed by this gentleness, by this forbearance in Philippians 4, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Specifically, in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, we are told that elders must be this. If they're not this, they cannot serve as an elder. It finds its apex in God, and we'll look at that in a minute. And here's where Barclay makes the link to the law that's really rich for what we're talking about. The written code or the spirit, the newness of the spirit. Here's the link. It goes back into the classical Greek. It talks about a man named Aristotle. And Aristotle defined this word as being better than justice. And then Aristotle said this of it. This is what it means. It is the spirit that corrects the law when the law is deficient because the law is ambiguous and general. In other words, the law can't take into uh, kind of stock every occasion that can happen. The law has to be intentionally general. And then a judge comes along and has to apply the law. And this word is that spirit that looks at the spirit of the law and not just the letter. And so it recognizes the occasions when a legal right can become a moral wrong. Think of this. You can have the law on your side in life. And you can say, I'm justified in doing this. I have a moral right to do this. No, you don't. You may have a legal right. That doesn't mean it is morally right. And so this word recognizes the impossibility that cleaves to moral law. You know, we can do that with our neighbors. You may have the law on your side in some dispute. And yet the way you handle it, you are morally wrong. That's not always the case. You're going to have the law on your side and you can stand on the law and you can do so rightly. But there are times when people act according to law and they do a moral wrong. And that is what he is getting here. The spirit supersedes the letter of the law. So something can be completely justified legally and yet morally completely wrong. That's why I spent a lot of time in this passage. I don't have the time to do it this morning, but I want to challenge you to go there. And I want you to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the believer in lawsuits. And that's why Paul says it is better to be defrauded than to go to law before unbelievers against a brother. You may have a moral right, or excuse me, a legal right. Does that make it right? The spirit. You know, God is the apex of this quality. Instead of demanding his legal right, he gives way to mercy. That's why in the book of James, what does it say? Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. Think of Jesus. I don't have time to go to all these places. Think of Jesus and how he handles the woman taken in adultery. Think of that. Think about how God has handled you. Let him who is without sin be the first to cast the stone. I think we may have another beautiful one as we get closer to Christians, because this really goes to this illustration well. Joseph, excuse me, hears that Mary is pregnant. And it says specifically in Matthew 1, he is a just man. He is a righteous man. But he is minded to put her away privately. Why mercy? It's looking at the spirit of the law. Not his own hurt. Not his own legal right. He wants to do right. He's a just man. But he wants to handle it rightly. Think of another one. Jesus teaches, and this is where it gets tough, is in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, The law said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Lex talionis. But I say to you. <laughs> we all like this one. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Then you'll be like your father in heaven. Why? It's not in the written code. It's in the spirit that is over and above it. The newness of the spirit. You know, a couple weeks ago, and I'll bring this to a close. A couple weeks ago, I gave you an illustration out of the book, The Hiding Place, the story of Corey Ten Boom. And I talked to you about, I won't even go into that, but how they were sheltering Jews, breaking law, in order to do good. They end up in concentration camps. Betsy, Corey's sister, dies. I think many of you have read this story. If you haven't read the book, you need to read the book, watch a movie, tremendous story. Betsy dies. Now, Corey is a godly woman and God uses her greatly, but Corey is struggling all this time. I mean, all the tough stuff in the concentration camp, watching people brutalized, watching, you know, they all have to pray before men stark naked all these different times and all this stuff, death, mayhem, carnage. They're standing in line, I think, to be paraded before all the guards stark naked. Betsy's looking around the room and she says to Corey, when the war is over, we need to build a place to help these people rebuild their lives and find healing. All these people who are being so ravaged. And Corey, of course, is looking around at all the people like them that are dying. And all of a sudden she realizes Betsy is not talking about her and them. Betsy's talking about the guards. Betsy's talking about all the Germans who are killing them. And Corey says, I don't know. I can't go there right now. 
Betsy dies, the war is over, Corey does exactly that. They build two different houses because they feel like they can't mix them. One place where they are sheltering and helping those whose lives have been destroyed by the concentration camps. They were the victims of it. They build another facility for the perpetrators to help them rebuild. And it was all the vision that come from Betsy. What is that vision? It's the newness of the spirit. It's not the old way of the written law. So many important lessons in what Corey relates at the end of that. You know, one of the things she said, people from the state came and would wanted to see, you know, what are you guys doing that's working? Because they are really rehabilitating people and people are going on. You know what their plan was? Bible study and gardening. That's it. It wasn't like, you know, sit around and poo-hoo and relay all your stories and da-da-da-da-da-da. No. Bible studies and get out in the dirt. Plant new life. Watch it grow. And as you watch it grow and you nurture life, God's doing something inside you. And you're going to let it go. And they did. On both sides of that, the victim and the perpetrator. And Corey makes a remarkable statement. She said, I found that there was one thing that was true. And that is the people that were able to either forgive or be forgiven were the people who could move ahead. Those that could not were stuck in captivity to the law in their heart. And it all came down that concept of forgiveness mercy can I extend mercy can I receive it and as we move into Christmas as we move into this season of the year and we think about why Christ came Christ didn't just come to be a baby in a baby manger Christ came to rule and reign in your life and mine he came that we might be united with him and in walking in him that we might find life, we might find victory, and we may serve him in the newness of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And when you walk in the newness of the spirit, it is completely contrary to the natural inclination. And so as we close, Are you in just a continual state of rebellion against God and against his law? Then you need to submit your life unto Christ. Are you walking in the newness of the spirit? Are you just always looking for justice to be done and the law and its demands? Or are you being what it says in James? Mercy. Triumphing over judgment, my friend, the church is to be a place of refuge and mercy and healing. And we must extend it, especially in these dark days in which we live. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.